Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, how goes your apparently very, very unsuccessful vacation week? Yeah, it's a staycation mostly designed to watch. Yeah, sorry to our all, our listeners in advance about this, to watch the All-Star game and do all the All-Star festivities. So it's been a baseball week, and then there's uh, a lot of my family is in town for a big reunion on Friday. So, yeah, I kind of learned something during lockdown, and that was to put family first. So, yeah, I took some time off to, to watch the game, go to the All-Star stuff, and then to spend time with family. So a little out of the loop, but got to say I'm kind of enjoying it. I, I can imagine that. I assume that actually in the stadium, you couldn't hear all of the mic'd up players, right? No, but I watched a lot of the highlights when I got home. It was so much fun just to be there and be in person. And you just like seeing Clayton Kershaw, my favorite Dodger, my favorite current Dodger, I should say, start the All-Star game at home and watching him take that step back before starting. He's never done that before a start, and it was just he just wanted to take it all in, and he's just a special player and someone who's uh, a joy to watch for me, and it was just really, really cool to be there, and my voice is half gone because, yeah, I was cheering very, very loudly for Kirsch and booing even louder for, let's see, Machado and all the cheaters, all the cheating Astros who cheat, the cheating cheaters who cheat, yeah. Mm -hmm. Entirely reasonable, yes. Well, the only reason I kept watching the game on television was that the the mic'd up players and the specificity of the mic'd up players was more amusing than I expected it to be. I, it, it was it, very fun. I don't know that I thought that I've thought in the past or in regular games that having people mic'd up has been all that amusing. But actually, having pitchers on the mound being mic'd up was funny. Having players on opposite sides of the dugout being mic'd up and having conversations there there was some amusing aspects to the telecast. So usually I can take or leave the All-Star game, but there was just enough about it that was funny that I, I kept watching the entire time. That and I kept wanting to see if you were going to be on TV. Yeah, like that Blue Jays pitcher who was like, John Smoltz was telling him what to throw from the booth. Like, yes. how cool is that? I yes, mean, Alex none of it was... worked. The ratings were terrible, but, you know, it was, if you're a baseball fan, these are the things that are Also, that are I don't think you, I don't think you would ever be able to get people to tune in, which is the thing that you need on the basis of yes several of them are going to be mic'd up between innings and i similarly don't think okay denzel washington is going to say 90 seconds of nice things about jackie robinson is going to get people to tune in unfortunately whereas the home run derby was a total blast and oh so, my god that was so much fun anyway this is enough baseball talk so uh this is our 178th episode we have no showrunner guest this week but we do have Two friends of the five joining us on the pod this week to discuss the latest on Netflix and what to expect from HBO's House of the Dragon. But before we get into all that, we're going to start where we usually do. Headlines. Number one. Leading off the week's top headlines, 
NBC has ordered missing persons drama found to its midseason roster with the series starring shameless alum Shanola Hampton becoming the third for showrunner and former TV's top five guest and Keche Okoro Carroll joining both all Americans on the CW. All three, of course, are exec produced by Greg Berlanti. Meanwhile, NBC has also passed on drama pilots Blank State and the Yellowstone-esque Unbroken starring Scott Bakula. In other pilot news, CBS drama The Never Game has officially been picked up after the project starring This Is Us grad Justin Hartley changed writers following it being pushed off cycle after a scheduling issue. So pilot season updates in July. That's where we are. Year-round scheduling. I hear it is a thing. Uh, in casting news, also, ABC's Beauty and the Beast live-action special has enlisted Grammy winner Her to star as Belle. Over at Hulu, Hugh Jackman will voice the lead character in the animated series Koala Man, which hails from co-creator Rick and Morty and former TV's Top 5 guest Justin Roiland. And on the renewal front, FX is bringing back Breeders for a fourth season. Sci-Fi has given an early season three renewal to dramedy resident Alien, and Amazon has also given an early season three pickup to genre drama The Wheel of Time, with the news among the first wave announcements to come out of Comic-Con. Dan, it's Comic-Con season. What the hell you say, Leslie? I, that's what I see on social. I, this is my first Comic-Con that I haven't covered remotely or in, in person in I don't know how long, maybe since I joined THR. Well, congratulations. Uh, I have I have not been to or really covered a Comic-Con since 2014, and I don't feel all that bad about that, honestly. Comic-Con was definitely a thing I did and a thing that occasionally amused me and a thing that exhausted me. Plus, in this ever-strange day and age of ours, being surrounded by tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure what they've done for attendance this year, of people is just really not all that appealing, even though apparently there will be masked restrictions up the wazoo for actual Yeah, I saw that there's events. a ton, like an, an insane lines to get into the into the convention center because of the COVID checks. Yeah, the, the sheer amount of inconvenience to make the event happen, I can only assume is the kind of thing that would make someone pull their hair out. By someone, I mean me. Similarly, I've also been hearing tales of a lack of Wi-Fi in various key ballrooms, and the failures of of the Wi-Fi in Hall H and Ballroom 20 in the past have definitely been among my among my least favorite things about Comic Con. So, so yeah, I, I don't feel too bad about that. But definitely, the the team team thr led by uh aaron couch etc will be doing coverage from san diego and i'm sure they will be doing a spectacular job and i'm sure glad that they will be doing a spectacular job and not me but look we're we're sort of we're in a halfway stage between everybody thinking that well not everybody some people thinking that either we're past covid or we should be past covid and the reality that with this latest variant, numbers are going up everywhere. And so we're seeing some casualties. I certainly hope that Comic-Con will not be a super spreader event, which seems inevitable. But also we're in the process of of hearing what's going to happen to the Television Critics Association press tour, which was supposed to begin next week and was supposed to be the triumphant return of in-person press tours after three straight virtuals and is currently in the process of going either 100% or mostly virtual. And 
what are you going to say? You know, it's, it's a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you would be a perffectly fine thing to say. No, it's, it's just, it, the press tour is a complicated event. It is a complicated event under any circumstances. It is a draining and expensive and, and time sensitive, time intensive event. And the fact that, all of these productions were having to basically jeopardize their COVID budgets to uh, to pause things and take everyone out of the bubble and and have them all get tested and then come to be in a room of 200 television critics coming from all over the country, some of whom... Especially with- having some of these shows that were at Comic-Con with talent also coming straight from going from San Diego back to the set, then back to... The, to Pasadena or to Pasadena for the TCA. Yeah, the the logistics were were simply going to be a nightmare. And I feel bad for the TCA board that has had to deal with this because everybody wants coverage streams to reopen in some normal ways. This was just going to be a, a really touch and go and tenuous event. And, you know, I just I just want everyone to be to be safe and healthy and to take care of each other. And if that means missing certain things or doing certain things via Zoom or whatever, yeah, and I'm glad I'm not standing in line with people at Comic-Con, regardless of how much people are saying, how many how many vaccinations and boosters people say they have, whatever testing people think they want to prove, whatever masks people have as they go through doors, because you know that the second that the lights go down for clips and pilots and whatever, that people's masks will come down as well. It just, come on. It, it also, just, it's like 90-something degrees in San Diego this weekend, so yikes. Well, <laughs> It's ninety plus the mask. That's a lot. Oh, it's, it's just a lot. It's it's a it's a lot. And Comic Con again, like press tour, is a lot under the absolute hundred percent best, most contained, safest, healthiest of circumstances. If things aren't going to be that way, anyway. Here, here's wishing everybody a great time at Comic Con. I hope people enjoy. I hope people get what they want to get out of it. And that doesn't mean COVID nineteen. And yeah, we'll just give you whatever coverage we can from. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have some some uh, Comic-Con highlights on, in headlines, if not a full segment next week. But I just want to flash back to Comic-Con. My, one of my biggest memories of Comic-Con was the first time that you and I really clicked. And it was in the press room for Glee after I got thrown under the bus <laughs> uh, in Hall H. It was right after I exclusively reported a story that quoted Ryan Murphy saying that Corey Monteith, Chris Colfer, and Leah Michelle would not be returning to Glee. And then Brad Falchuk came out on stage and said that Ryan told him that he never told that reporter, that reporter, of course, being me, that he never said that, which I have on tape and published the full transcript of. Um, and then... That was fun. So I was, I think I had a panic attack because I was in the room to hear it and then had to report on being thrown under the bus. And then from there, I had to walk directly from the press room. I've never been shaking so much because, you know, getting thrown under the bus in front of 7,200 people and then having to go interview the people who who did it and who heard the whole thing. That was, yeah, that was a pretty nerve wracking day. And I'll never forget, we, Dan, you and I were seated at the same press table. I think you were, you were at HitFix back then. And they sat very first table. First person to sit down was Brad Falchuk, um, who I've always, you know, had a great relationship with covering back to my days covering Glee and even afterwards. 
And he apologized and he said, I'm sorry, you know, but that's what he told me. And I'll never forget you defended me right to, to Brad's face. And then you wrote up a really, really, really just, it's the most, it's the story that I most regret being wiped off of hit fix because you wrote about the <laughs> entire thing and how it all played out and how shitty it was for Brad to do. And then to face me literally right after he did it. And I'll never forget that Dan. And it's, you know, you've, you've been in my, uh, had a piece of my heart ever since. And it's that, that, that share has only grown over the years, my friend. So thank you for being you. Oh, I'm, I'm here for, I'm here for you. Then I'm here for you now, Leslie. <laughs> You're you the best. You the best. So anyway, stand up for your friends, Comic-Con people. Whatever's happening at Comic-Con, stand up for your friends. And be safe, everybody. All right, time to move on. Up next. Number two. Up second this week, Netflix reported its second quarter earnings and following its Q1 subscriber loss, the news wasn't nearly as bad this time. The streaming giant predicted a subscriber loss of 2 million in the second quarter and reported a loss of only 970,000 subscribers. Executives also looked ahead to the third quarter and predicted subscriber gains of a million. So joining us to break down where Netflix stands now is Alex Weprin, THR's media and business writer and, of course, friend of the five. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me, Leslie and Dan. So let's let's start with the, with the subscriber numbers. You know, I just ran through all, where things stand right now, but how did Wall Street react? Yeah, I mean... Uh... Wall Street is kind of taking a cautious approach here. Um, they seem to have a bit of a bounce back because they did beat their expectations. They were expecting to lose $2 million. They only lost $1.3 million. So in some respects, that's a good thing. But at the same time, this is the first time ever that they've had two consecutive quarters where they've lost subscribers. And so I think Wall Street is wondering right now, the reactions have been mixed, is this what they call a dead cat bounce where – you know, it looks like things are turning around, but maybe they're not. Or is this actually the bottom? You know, is this as bad as it's going to get for Netflix and will it be better from here? What was the tone of this announcement? Because it was sort of funny. The the news started coming out on Twitter and it, everyone's like, OK, well, <laughs> down by a million subscribers, down by 1.3 million subscribers. And the immediate reaction was, oh, no, that sounds horrible. Everyone's like, OK, but no, this is actually great news. Did they make this sound like a positive thing? Was that all spin or or were, or was it a little of each? Netflix was definitely spinning it as a positive. They wanted to send the message that they think this is the bottom. It's only going to get better. Um, you know, they're, they're going to return to growth. Everything's great. You know, they've got this plan to, to add subscribers with advertising, and they're going to crack down on passwords, and everything's golden from here. That was kind of the message. They were being somewhat cautious. Like, they did recognize that they need to make sure they have a real content slate that will keep people engaged. But the message was definitely more optimistic um, than it was last quarter when you know, it was pretty rough for them. I, I'm still surprised that they lost a million subscribers in the same quarter with the, the with the new season of Stranger Things, which is its signature hit. Yeah, I mean, that that itself is a little surprising. And actually, if you think back, you know, to uh, Squid Game last year, um, that quarter that Squid Game debuted, remember Squid Game was the biggest show in Netflix history. They had a fine quarter, but like it wasn't a great quarter. And I mean, it was a surprise know, hit and like an out of nowhere hit. Right. You know, but it's a sort of thing. It was a sort of show that might you think you might think drive people to Netflix because they're hearing about this thing. Um, and so the fact that neither Stranger Things nor Squid Game seemed to like really provide a jolt 
is a kind of a not great sign for Netflix because those are arguably the two biggest quote unquote, you know, franchises that they have at the moment. Um, right. And Bridgerton seemed to, you know, be, you know, it, it seemed to have come and gone in the blink of an eye. But still in all, if they were positioning this as being a positive, if they were looking on the bright side of life, was Stranger Things the thing that was being credited with this being a less disastrous announcement than it could have been? They definitely gave a lot of credit to Stranger Things. Um, and they clearly see that and any potential spinoffs as kind of a pretty important part of their content strategy. You yeah, know, and by potential spinoffs, they are they already announced one at least, plus the stage show, which I'm sure will exactly, be filmed yeah, for Netflix. They'll be thinking about other stuff too. Like they don't have Marvel. They don't, you know, they don't have that type of IP. So Stranger Things is about as close as they get. Clearly they want to do the same thing with Squid Game, maybe Bridgerton as well. Yeah, there's you already know. a prequel for Bridgerton. There's the Squid Game unscripted show, which we've talked about on the show, what could go wrong. You know, that that kind of stuff. Obviously, we talk a lot on the show about the need for franchises and how you're building these up. And we'll get into more of that, too, with when we welcome James Hibbard and talk about House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones. But the bigger issue, too, that, that as we talk about Netflix is the launch of their ad-supported tier, which they said is coming in early 2023. And they're already negotiating with studios on these different deals to integrate ads into these these shows. What do you make of these, you know, of that ad tier? Do we know how much it's going to cost and, and any more info, uh, info about it? We have almost no details about it whatsoever, other than the fact that Microsoft is going to be selling it for them and providing some tech. I will say that, you know, you kind of have to have the ad supported tier and the password sharing crackdown uh, in tandem, because ultimately what they want is they want, you know, when they do start cracking down in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and Korea in their mature in their more mature markets that have a lot of password sharing, they want to have some place to send people <laughs> that's cheaper because they know that some people that are sharing passwords are doing so because they don't want to pay full price for Netflix and they want to have that option. And they also clearly recognize that, you know, I should point out that like once they launch this tier, it's not like if you subscribe to Netflix, you're suddenly going to have ads. This is going to be a new, cheaper tier that might have less content because they're still negotiating with some studios to make sure that they have the rights to show ads by content. Um, and, and they so, said that not all not all of their programming and not all of their content will be available on this ad-supported tier. So some stuff will will not have ads at all. Most of it will be, but but there will be stuff that's missing. So it's going to be less expensive. We don't know exactly how much less. But ultimately, you know, if they launch it, I think it's quite likely that probably millions of Netflix subscribers that currently pay $15 a month will end up switching to this cheaper plan, especially in an, in an economic downturn. Like people are looking for ways to cut, you know, $5 here, $10 there. So, you know, it'll probably have millions of users pretty quickly. Some people downgrading, some people that are kind of moving over from sharing passwords. Um, you know, we'll have to see how it goes, but there are very few firm details as of yet. And we have no idea what shows will, will, be ad free. I mean, I, can you, I mean, I'm trying to think if like a show like Stranger Things or Squid Game or Bridgerton, if those will have ads, because I can't imagine that they're going to do that. My interpretation of what they've said so far, and admittedly, I'm kind of parsing it because they've been very vague. I would expect all Netflix originals to be on the service. I think the only shows that might be missing are stuff that they've licensed from elsewhere because they don't have the rights to have ads with them. I'd be very surprised if they had commercial breaks in the shows. Very surprised. I think at least at launch, they're going to have maybe pre-roll or post-roll, kind of like YouTube, um, and probably some ads like on the home screen. 
but I'd be shocked if they had commercial breaks at launch. I'm just so interested in the tone of all of this. So I want to ask you to parse a little bit more because the ad tier is a thing that for years they repeatedly over and over again said, we are not doing this. And then finally they had to reluctantly go, yeah, I guess, well, we have to stay in business. How are they positioning this tonally? Does it seem like it's a thing they're presenting as, yes, this is a defeat of everything we stood for, but at least we can make some more money? Or are they pretending to be excited about it? They're, they're framing it. Their positioning is that it's, you know, consumer friendly. They're listening to the people. <laughs> you know, they, they, are framing. Reed Hastings was always very clear that he strongly disliked advertising. He said it was a different, a differentiator for Netflix. We don't do ads. That's why we're better. Um, and now more recently, they've basically said, well, a lot of people seem to subscribe to services with ads and they don't seem to care. And our service, they're acknowledging that Netflix is now pretty expensive and that a lot of people are either sharing passwords or just not subscribing because they don't want to pay that full price. And they're doing this just to have that option. And I, you know, so they're framing it as like, we're doing what the consumers want to be doing. Um, Yep. We're totally abandoning everything that we once said we (laughs) were, you know, that we said we were for, but you know, this is what consumers want. We'll give it to them. We'll try to make it as, you know, pain, painless as possible. And at the same time, you know, Reed Hastings is now saying that, or predicting the end of linear TV is coming over the next five to 10 years because, well, Netflix is kind of becoming linear TV. If you have the advertising, et cetera. I mean, you know, to your point, it may possibly no commercial uh, ad breaks in content, but what do you make of that con- of that comment? That seems like typical Reed Hastings though, doesn't it? Like he's been predicting the end of linear TV for a long time. I mean, I guess he's right. Like if, if, you know, we get our sports through like YouTube TV, which is, basically just a cable package that's through streaming um, or Hulu with live TV, you know, then sure. Like that could be the end of linear TV. Um, But, you know, ultimately sports and news aren't really going anywhere. Um, Obviously entertainment is already shifting on demand, right? So linear is going to be for news and sports. Like you are going to watch stuff live. If it's something that needs to be watched live, everything else you're going to watch when you want to watch it. Yeah. And it's also been just, you know, the, the narrative that, you know, broadcast television is dead, et cetera. I mean, that's still the big, the, the fastest way to deliver a hit. I mean, look at this past broadcast season, right? A show like Abbott Elementary completely popped airing on broadcast, right? Cut through, got an Emmy, nom- multiple Emmy nominations. I mean, broadcast is still the fastest way to get wide reach, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it's called broadcast. Broad for, it's for a reason, yeah. There's still millions and millions of households here in the U.S., that don't have high-speed internet. And so broadcast television is still a lifeline for entertainment and news and, and, and information to those households. And, you know, it, it, it also streams. Like Abbott Elementary is on Hulu. It's a hit on Hulu, too. So, like, you know, it, it, you can be in all these places at once. And I think that that's in some ways an advantage for some of the broadcast hours because they are reaching those people that really can't stream entertainment well or reliably while also being accessible to people that don't have antennas or pay for cable. Talking a little bit more about the logistics that came out of all of this, uh, were there any updates on what Netflix's spending is going to look like and how it's going to be impacted by all of this? They, they did say, so they, they spend about $17 billion a year on content, which is a crazy number. And they said that's the zip code that they're going to be in for the foreseeable future. That's a quote, the zip code. So give or take $17 billion, that's what they're going to be spending on content. Annually, just annually, annually, 
that hurts my head. And then you, you know, and it's like, they're saying, you know, the, that number used to go up every time, right? Every earnings, they would say, oh, it's, it's this and this, it's climbing. Decade. Yeah. It's gone up every year for a decade and now it's flattening, flattening out. Right. Which is something that we've talked about on the show, like with, you know, John Landgraf has predicted at some point the peak TV bubble has to burst. So the prices of for everything has been skyrocketing, right? We've seen talent deals, overall deals. Now with COVID adding to the cost and, and the time of production, et cetera, and everything else, it's like maybe now we're starting to finally get to that peak. But who knows? I mean, we'll probably find out in December or January when FX puts out those tallies. Exactly. I will say one one thing to consider, and this is something that Netflix has also made a point of, is where that $17 billion is allocated. Because for them, it seems like... Um, Spending cash overseas for originals in other countries is kind of their top priority, whereas in the U.S. and Europe, it's about bringing up franchises. So I think they're going to spend a lot of money to try and develop franchises in their mature markets in North America and Europe and Korea um, and in other countries in Africa and Southeast Asia um, in Latin America. They're going to spend a lot of money, and frankly, you could probably have more shows per dollar in a lot of these countries than you could in, in, in North America or Europe. Um, so they may, there may be some realignment and spend in terms of where that $17 billion gets spent. Oh, good God. If someone wants to start figuring out how many seasons of your typical German or South African original you can make for the amount that they made the last Stranger Things season for, I, I mean, it's got to be like 20 shows from each of those countries for that price. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's and just for the price that. of the, the hour-long finale, right? And honestly, I think they're they're betting, and they might be right, they might be wrong, that they can take those shows that were produced at a much lower cost, like Squid Game, and turn them into global hits. And maybe they can, maybe they can't. That'll be something to track. Right. I mean, we've seen them do it before. Obviously, Squid Game is the best example, but there's other shows. Money Heist, one of my favorites, Elite, etc. You know, these, these shows have crossover appeal, and then obviously they're dubbing everything in multiple languages. It really is, you know, as we talk about the entire content spectrum and the need to own all of your rights, that's what's happening. You know, you're this is part this feeds into exactly why the CW is going to be sold. Right. We've you know, Alex, we've talked about and reported on that story before because you're losing all these money because you're losing money from selling global rights to shows because you have to maintain them because you have to have them in every single market for your platform. And, there's, exactly. and and as as you said, this is where all the resources are going for Netflix, or not all, but most. So, it's a priority for sure. Well, any other takeaways from the big uh, earnings report over at Netflix this week? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I I am very curious to see their password crackdown in practice, um, because it's really difficult, you know, to not annoy your customers, you know, while also trying to extract more money from them. And so it sounds like what they're going to try and do is kind of, you know. Gently, if they think it's like a parent with a kid, you know, maybe say, "Hey, you can add, you know, add one more account for like two dollars a month or whatever. You know, just an extra two bucks, your your family can watch." But if there's like someone in like a dorm sharing it with thirty people, like, you know, how do you how do you kind of make that work without annoying them? So like, it's a it's a real challenge because Netflix has always been pretty beloved, you know, for their you know for having a better user interface than a lot of the other streaming services and for generally being customer friendly. And this is going to be new territory for them. Excellent. Well, we thank you so much for updating us on all things Netflix, Alex, and you can read all of Alex's fantastic coverage of Netflix and much, much more over at The Hollywood Reporter. Number three. 
Up third, it's the end of an era at Showtime, as the premium cable network's talk show Deezus and Marrow will not return for a fifth season after the late-night duos split. Dan, we've had the, the guys on the show in the past, and you have gone on record in a very well-crafted critics notebook about how this was your favorite of all of the late-night shows. What happened here? I don't think we currently know exactly what happened. The news started breaking over the weekend that Jesus and Mero were ending their regular podcast. And that was both somewhat shocking, but also not really shocking because the podcast had become increasingly irregular in how frequently it was appearing. Uh, people were wondering if one or the other of them were not invested in the podcast anymore. But I don't think anyone thought that the TV show was in jeopardy, especially since it was only, I believe, halfway through the fourth season. So basically, they simply kind of stopped abruptly in the middle of their summer hiatus and said, we're not coming back. And you, you hear rumors about reasons why their friendship or professional partnership might be strained or whatever and they live they live very different lives that's kind of the amusement of the way that their rapport has shifted over the years is that they might have started off in the same place give or take as these two guys from the bronx etc etc but it has increasingly become marrow has his wife he has his four kids he coaches youth football he does all of these semi-domestic-y things. He has a family, whereas Jesus, there have been regular jokes on the show about Hollywood Jesus and and Jesus liking to get out there and, uh, and, you know, hanging out with the stars and all of that. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the reason why things separated. There could be countless reasons, but it is hugely disappointing. As I said in my critics' notebook, basically, I used to watch a bunch of these weekly shows, you know, the late night comedy shows, whether it's Full Frontal with Samantha B or Daily Show, which is, of course, daily uh, or Last Week Tonight and, you know, regularly watch episodes of Colbert and, and Amber Ruffin, et cetera. But over the past year, year and a half, some exhaustion has set in with the state of the world and the repetition of topics. And the thing I loved most about Jesus and Marrow is that, yes, they talked about politics. Yes, they made fun of Trumpito and all of that. But they also made sure that they still talked about the various rap feuds that they enjoyed talking about or the various viral social media ridiculousness that had always been part of the brand. Uh, so I liked that they had a very good sense of we can't ignore the crazy stuff that's happening in the world that everybody's talking about, but we're still going to do the show that we've always done and fixate on the things that we've always been fixating on. And as a result, it was both a good reframing of any given news in the week and a good palate cleanser. So, yeah, I'm I'm very disappointed. And the particular nature of the show's demise, without any uh, advance warning, without any finale send off, that was particularly unsettling or sad. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about the future for for both of them? I mean, obviously, Showtime is a you know. A, uh, uh, part of the Paramount family alongside CBS. CBS is going to be looking for someone to replace James Corden. Could you see either one of the guys take that slot? I'm not sure that there's any evidence that Marrow either is designed for or wants 
necessarily that sort of solo spotlight. And I don't think he would be a very good match at all for that slot. I, when we, when we talked about Corden departing, I mentioned, uh, that Trevor Noah seemed like a logical person to make the jump from Daily Show if he wanted to. But on the other hand, he might feel like he's overqualified for that time slot. He might feel as if he's too big, whereas I don't think that Jesus would be likely to feel that way. I think Jesus might feel like it was a perfect potential runway for for his solo career stardom. I don't know that it's a it's a good match. I don't think that the audience that that time slot gets is an audience that is Jesus compatible, but either he would bring an audience with him and people would actually come and watch CBS late night from different demographics or else not. My, my hunch would be that it would not be a recipe for success, but my hunch would also be that it might be a recipe for CBS to look like they're taking a, a mid-sized swing that people wouldn't expect. So I, I would, be curious to see if if that's a thing that they could do with uh with Jesus. I you know whether or not he's better he and Mero are both better suited for a place in which they can swear where they can talk about uh you know yeah where they can be as sucio as they want to be. I don't know that necessarily CBS is ever going to be that place but good on them for the hypothetical effort if they were to try it i don't i don't suspect they will and as for marrow i don't know where he would go i think there are lots of things where he could be either a companion piece to somebody or something he's also done some acting uh so maybe he would want to spend a while voice acting and and making cameos and things and therefore be able to actually continue to coach little league baseball and and little league football. I don't know. It's so it'll it'll be interesting to see. They're they're just so good together and the whole point of the show was always okay, here are these two guys and their interactions. That's all the show is. Enjoy. And I thought they did a really good job with it. They they were not necessarily the best interviewers, but they became increasingly strong as interviewers. And they they would get unexpectedly good interviews with people like I thought their interview with uh, Jeff Bridges recently was a really surprisingly good, excellent interview. If you go back to our conversation with them when they were on the podcast, uh, that would be episode 105 from January 29th, 2021. Yes. And they had just done both their interview with with Barack Obama and their standalone hip hop centric episode. And so those to me kind of pointed at the show and at Showtime giving these two guys the chance to do different things. And so it felt to me as if opportunities like those those were the ways of saying of of Showtime saying we want to keep you guys creatively rejuvenated. We want to make sure that you guys are happy. Uh but, you know, obviously if they weren't feeling at this moment as if the creative partnership was doing what it needed to do for them, either permanently going forward or you know they could they could reunite in in a year I, why not who would who would say no so i don't want to speculate in any way on what is happening interpersonally between Jesus and Mero i sure as hell don't know the answer to that uh but it the the timing of this is just so very unusual it is it is not the way shows typically get pulled <laughs> yeah, especially late night shows. So I yeah. talk have the variety talk show kind. I mean, looking at the larger landscape here uh, for the genre, what kind of void does this leave in that space? Well, more than anything, 
there weren't all that many shows hosted by a a Dominican immigrant and the son of Jamaican immigrants who were talking about their extremely rough and tumble upbringing in New York City and all of that. They were they were speaking a language that was different from the language any other talk show host is speaking. And that meant that they also had entirely different conversations with some of their guests than a lot of interviews that you get. So the, the conversation about subway stops with Denzel Washington was, you would think maybe that would be a boring thing. It was actually surprisingly hilarious because it was Denzel Washington utterly at his most relaxed. And it was so good to see because sometimes he can be a standoffish interview subject. You know, if you, you can go through his myriad talk show appearances and sometimes he's very good, but sometimes he really is, is cold and distant and remote. They got him to be amazingly relaxed and funny. And I thought that was great. Uh, so there are so many different things where the segments that they were talking about, it wasn't just, okay, what was Trump's latest blunder? Okay. What did Marjorie Taylor Greene say that was insane, you know, that a lot of the shows rely on the exact same level of politically outrage, uh, political outrage coming from the left, all of that. And it's not like that isn't my level of outrage as well. And it's not like probably ideologically, if you put them on the spot, that isn't Jesus Mero's outrage. But they just weren't coming from the same place as everyone else was. And it was it was just so good to see them becoming more comfortable doing the sometimes silly things they had to do. I thought a lot of the the taste testing segments that they did on the bodega set in recent weeks where they would test celebrity uh, boutique alcohols or they had Keenan Thompson on and they tested expensive bottled waters. And it was a great segment because they had to try guessing what the segment, what the bottled waters were and how much they cost. And let me tell you, Keenan Thompson can recognize how Dasani tastes in a blind test t- taste test. And that amuses me. I thought there were a lot it's of got things. salt in it. Okay. But did none of the others? I think Dasani and Aquafina. If okay. memory serves. I'll, I'll take your word. I, so yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a Brita filter guy. It all tastes like slightly elevated tap water to me. Um, no, they, they were, they were just, they were, they were a great podcast guest. Uh, we, we loved having them on. Uh, they hosted the last of the TCA awards that I had to orchestrate as TCA president and they were, they were great and lively hosts. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm disappointed and sad. I will continue to watch last week tonight. Every week I watch Full Frontal occasionally, but definitely not every week anymore. I watch The Daily Show Hit and Miss now. So it's this is this is the one that I had been watching regularly and looking forward to even more than last week tonight in the past few months. So oh well, it is a it is a somewhat strange story the way it all came out yeah well we're gonna pour one out for the guys and uh, a reminder you can go back and listen to our fantastic interview with them back in episode 105 from january 29th 2021 number four up next it's dragon time HBO's Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon is coming into focus along with the premium cable network's larger plan for the franchise. Joining us to break down what to expect from House of the Dragon and other offshoots from George R.R. Martin's beloved fantasy drama is THR writer-at-large and our resident Westeros expert, James Hibbard. James, welcome to the show. 
Hey, great to, to be here. Thank you for having me. So you went to set and you let's just get the, all of the, uh, the dot, dot the I's and cross the T's right out of the out of the gate. You are by far the definitive reporter for all things Game of Thrones. You covered the the flagship expertly during its entire run. You wrote a book. You want to tease the book a little bit here? Uh, yeah, the, the book is called Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon. Um, it was going to be titled All Men Must Die, but then a pandemic happened and the publisher was like, that's not, Target is not going to want to put that on their shelves right now. Guess what? That was a very good decision on their part. Yes. So well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and it was funny because once it did come out, a couple countries kept the original title and then ran into trouble with people putting that on social media because because it was flagged as hate speech. So it was a really good idea to get rid of All Men Must Die. As, that is as, entirely as, not funny and yet just a, a little bit funny. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, so let's. I want to go through various logistics. First of all, how long were you actually on set for? What did you actually see? Uh, I was on set for about three, four days uh, in in uh, in the UK at Leaves Den Studios. They have a really huge uh, footprint there, and they also had uh, Willy Wonka shooting there, and Aquaman two, and you know, you know, you had Jason Momoa driving around in in, the, in this uh, in this army vehicle that that he was using. And uh, and the, and the the dragon sets are are massive. Um, you, you have the you have the throne room, obviously a carryover from the original show, and when you go in there, it's like I've been in there, you know, a few times from visiting the original show, and it's just it's it's so large that you sort of takes your breath away. It's like twenty four thousand square foot room, and and it always kind of surprises uh, how big and ornamental of a space it is. It's it's like walking into like like a church or something. And then they have a new set for the Red Keep, which so where you know the the you know the main castle where 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 the Targaryens rule uh, Westeros from uh, in King's Landing. And all, all those some of those sets are familiar from the, what you've seen on Thrones, but they've never had them all in one place, unified, built together. Um, you, you, you walk from room to room and then go up a staircase and then go into other rooms. As one actor described, it, you know, you could have like literally moved in and, and, and used the Red Keep as your house. It was so, you know, connected and, and large and, and uh, sprawling. And that way the directors can follow action from room to room without cutting. So would you say that's the biggest difference, at least logistically speaking, between the two sets? I mean, those two things, and also that they have a, a volume LED uh, wall like uh, Star Wars uses uh, for its Disney Plus shows, which is one of those huge pr projection walls where you can have action in the foreground while projecting a real-time image in the background instead of having just a blank green screen for actors to act against. And uh, the biggest particular difference with that is that when actors had to be on the dragon rig, you know, pretending to ride a dragon, um, before it was this horrible task of you're just in this green box, you don't know what to look at, you're on this green turtle thing, and they just kind of pelt you with, with, with like rain and wind, and you pretend like you know what you're doing. You know, this time they could actually see where they were flying, and it was, it was like being in a theme park ride, and the actors really liked it. So what about the biggest differences between both shows? You've seen how many episodes of House of the Dragon now? I've seen one. Okay, so just the pilot. So from what you've seen and what you know is coming, what would you say is the biggest difference between these two shows, between the flagship well, and House of the Dragon? 
Well, it's got a lot of the same elements that made Thrones work. You know, you know, it's another war for the Iron Throne, or at least a war eventually. And there's lots of action and rivalries and there's dragons. Um, but I think the new factor is like, like for instance, Thrones by, Thrones by season five, the show was literally jumping between eight different storylines and had two dozen series regulars. This is much more intimate by comparison. It's more like a family drama, which is a very different scope. It's more like succession with dragons. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, along those lines, one of the most interesting things for me in your multi-part feature, which everyone should check out because it Anything you want to know about this, it is in James's various features. Yeah, uh, very go, expertly reported. You you go through the various different other projects that they did, the the bake off that yielded at least one pilot that got made, but then got hidden in the vaults that yeah. we'll never see. And then we the got the Naomi this, Watts pilot, yeah. And then we got this one, which was uh, ordered straight to series. What was your sense of why this ended up being the right? project to actually make it from the thought process to our screens late, uh, next month. I think part of it was that they did a lot of different scripts and this ended up being the strongest script. Uh, part of it was it was similar ish to the original show. And after trying uh, the, the, the blood moon pilot, which was very, very different from the original show, they want to kind of get back to something that was, more closer to what the original show was and and what they knew fans would like. And I think part of it was uh, director Miguel Sapochnik, who is you know, an incredibly talented director, directed some of the best episodes of Thrones, you know, him signing on. And from the very beginning of these conversations, and the conversations literally go back to the moment uh, HBO announced that they were, they were going to end Game of Thrones in 2016, uh, from the from the very start, this is the one that George R. R. Martin said, this is what we should do next. And they did all these other things and then ended up sort of coming back to what he had been kind of saying all along. And he also has a fair amount, unlike some of these other ideas, he has a fair amount written about this this story uh, in his book, uh, Fire and Blood, uh, this, this, this sort of a history book of the Targaryens that spans or will eventually span 300 years. You know, he, he, you know, he spends, you know, a, a fair amount of pages on this. So, so there's more of a blueprint for this idea than there were for a lot of the other competing ideas. Speaking of competing ideas, you, you know, in your expert reporting for this cover story, you uncovered a couple other details that we didn't know about other projects that were in various stages of development. Can you break down where things stand about what else is in development? What else is, was, considered or scrapped or is now, you know, in contention? Well, um, you know, one of the fun ones I point out, and, and this was never developed, but was one of the pitch concepts floating around was this idea of almost like a superhero team up show where the seven gods of, of Westeros lore, like 10,000 years ago, they were like real people and they went around and had adventures and, and they came to be worshipped as gods. And so, so that was like one idea that just didn't go anywhere, but one of the the, the more fun, weird ideas. Uh, probably the most intriguing thing that came out of the reporting uh, is is the Jon Snow spinoff, which is one of those bits of reporting that you're like, yeah, I, I can't hold this for a month for, for, the, for, this, for this cover story. I, I, you know, the moment I can confirm this, I, you know, I, I want this out there now. And, and that's one you know, fans are excited by because it's the first one, it's the first idea that's an actual sequel. You know, for a while, 
uh, HBO was was right out there saying that they're not doing sequels, that they're only doing prequels. You know, they, they don't want to do anything that sort of you know messes with you know the, potentially messes with the legacy of the, the original show. But you know, doing that really opens the door to potentially doing other things. Uh, you know, I, I you know when when I first heard about it, you know, I just kind of got the sense that it was a familiar character and so i thought well it has to probably either be Jon snow or Arya. because those are both make sense and Arya would totally make sense if they ever decided to go that direction yes please <laughs> but you know so the other the other piece of, that i thought was interesting is you uncovered kind of the the plot for the future of house of the dragon and that this is not going to be a show that's going to go as long as the flagship so what do we know about how long dragon's going to run and what the overall plan is from miguel sapochnik and ryan condal yeah i, I mean first this has to go under the umbrella that you know, you know they haven't even you know you know you know fully written the you know, season two yet so um this could all change and we all know that that showrunners you know say that they have a plan and then you know they get different ideas and, and things change so and then so the show takes off much. or the show doesn't take off or exactly myriad exactly. other reasons yeah 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 along with like more pure creative reasons you know there's also obviously all the financial ones too so uh, with that said my understanding is this civil war storyline runs about three or four seasons and uh, for people who know the books they know that not many characters survive that so so pretty much the end of that civil war storyline will will be the the potentially the end of the show but one idea that's being kicked around and again this is a years down the line decision is they could in theory because they ended up naming it House of the Dragon instead of its original name, The Dance of the Dragons, which refers to the Targaryen Civil War, um, because they named it House of the Dragon, they, they could, you know, in theory, go forward or backward in time to other major events in the Targaryen timeline, from Aegon's conquest of Westeros to the uh, fall of Valyria to the, the, you know, the fall of the dragons. You know, there's like different, there's like different other sort of epic, you know, decades uh, where they could kind of zoom in on and potentially do something with a new cast if they, you know, preferred to kind of keep the brand instead of launching like a separate show. Yeah, and that, which makes the comparisons from your story to The Crown, well, pretty telling in terms of what they want to do long term. Yeah, and even just long-term. within the season itself, I mean, and that was the one surprise that, that I found when I was, you know, was the structure of the show. I mean, roughly the first half of the season has different actors playing the two female leads and that jumps forward a decade. And there are two other multi-year time jumps in the first season as well. And, and it's an ambitious storytelling and casting structure that is, you know, like the crown, but even faster because the crown usually does that between seasons and this is doing it within the season. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's the way to tell the story, right? Because it really gives you an opportunity to invest in these characters. Game of Thrones famously, you know, to get to that, great hook at the end of the first episode with a uh, you know brand being pushed out the window they really covered an enormous amount of ground really fast i mean people don't even seem you know really realize that john snow and sansa never even had a scene together until season five um this way they're really spending a lot of time on those formative relationships so that when you know you know that family begins to conflict and fight it really pays off and as you mentioned, there are 
two showrunners, and I found that an interesting part of your story because you have one showrunner who's basically clearly the head writer, but then you also have, as you mentioned, Miguel Sapochnik, who, of course, is the director, which is not necessarily the way most of these shows work. Obviously, listeners will know that mostly it's a, a head writer slash executive producer who's the showrunner instead of this balance of power. What impression did you get of how those two are working together and what the impact is of that unique structure? Well, what helps for them is they were friends before this project. So they're already friends, you know, going into it. And then they spent a while, I think up to a year with Miguel kind of helping Ryan develop it um, more informally before he, he, he signed on officially. Uh, so, so they also kind of tried out, you know, their working relationship a bit before committing to it as well. And their model is, uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss's, uh, you know, very strong working relationship on Thrones, because when you have a production this large and overpowering, the number of decisions that showrunners have to make every single day is, is, is just a, a massive amount. And so to have two people that the department heads can, can go to instead of just one, um, really helps divide the work. Uh, so, but it, yes, as you say, you know, Ryan will, is writing, focusing on writing the scripts, and Miguel is focusing on the show's direction. He's directing three episodes, as well as managing the other directors who are coming in. We also know that George R. R. Martin is very much involved in this take. So, you talked to George for the for your cover story here. What did he have to say about House of the Dragon, and, and what were your big takeaways from your time with him? Um, he was, yeah, he worked with Ryan to help develop the script. Um, he's also been involved with the, the other, uh, you know, projects that, that have been in the works. And, but at the same time, you know, he, it's, it's not like he, he, he's like on set and, and, uh, like editing the scripts or something. So, so, you know, to some extent he, he wasn't sure what he was going to get when, when that pilot came through and, you know, when they sent the pilot, he was, he was extremely excited. He's since watched nine of the 10 and he's, he's very enthusiastic about it. And, and some people say, well, you know, he's a producer on the show. Of course, he's going to be enthusiastic. But if, but if you know him from Thrones where he was a producer as well, he's not always enthusiastic. You know, he, he, you know, a lot of times, you know, if he doesn't feel that there's you know, you have something good to say about something. He just won't say something at all. Um, in this case, he is very bullish on the show and and is extremely excited uh, for people to see it. Whereas Benioff and Weiss, in your story, you mentioned they sent a congratulations note to the showrunners, but that is the full extent of their actual capacity here. Yeah, yeah, they they you know made the decision, and I'm I'm always sort of, sort of fascinated by this decision because you know you know contractually, I believe that they were. They, they could have been producers in name only, um, you know, which so many producers take, you know, as, as you know, um, on all these prequel projects. And they could have just, you know, taken the money and they did not. They 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 turned that down uh, because their feelings were if we're not going to be involved in it and, and we're not going to be, you know, giving our care and attention, it's not right for us to have our name on it. And they and the, then they stuck with that. Anything else we should be asking you about uh, House of the Dragon? Anything else that stands up? You know, I, I guess one thing also that's interesting is is HBO is ready to pull the trigger on renewal uh, like the day after the premiere if numbers are high enough. And I can't imagine it won't be renewed. It, it would have to totally bomb. So yeah, I think, they're, they're already working on on scripts for season two. Right, of course. Yeah, because you have to get you know plenty of 
you know, run away and get out ahead of, on these on these uh, big productions. Uh, you know, otherwise, it, you know, there's too much of a de- delay between seasons. But so I think we'll get one of those cryptic streaming ratings press releases. They're like, this is the most watched series debut on HBO Max in 2022. And we'll be like, what does that even mean? But, you know, it, it'll, it'll be enough to uh, to 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 get another uh, season. Yeah. And I mean, do, you know, speaking of additional seasons, you know, obviously the wait between certain seasons of Game of Thrones was extensive. And we've seen that obviously with other shows like Stranger Things and so forth. But do you have any kind of sense of when a potential second season could hit? Is it going to be an annual? Is House of the Dragon going to be a show that comes out every year? Uh, that's a great question. And I'm sure that they they would aim for every year. Uh, but I do not know. It seems unlikely that they would be able to turn it around a second season within you know, you know, basically one year from now. So I would be, I would more expect it to be maybe spring the following year. But, uh, but I, again, I'm just, you know, totally guessing on that part. Right. Well, you can read more of James' excellent coverage of House of the Dragon over on THR.com. And of course, follow him on Twitter for more as the episodes begin to roll out starting August 21st on HBO. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got HBO Max's debut of Rap Shit, Apple debuts Trying, Blown Away lands on Netflix, and Peacock journeys to the resort. Dan, what you got? Uh, several of those th- shows, including the resort, uh, are embargoed, so nothing, nothing to be said about that, which is fine. But yeah, no, there there are lots of things and a lot of things that are reaching different audiences, and so that also means a lot of things that even you didn't mention because some things are going to be very much on things on people's radars and other things people will have never heard about. So uh, you didn't mention The Last Movie Stars, which is Ethan Hawke's six-part documentary on HBO Max about the marriage and careers of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And I've watched a few episodes of that, and it's really, really very good. It's, it's a tremendous amount of fun to watch just all of those vintage 50s and 60s clips of uh, Newman and Woodward. And I think that there are a lot of angles that it takes that are smart angles. So it covers, it covers the idea of what celebrity and celebrity romance were back in the fifties and sixties. It, uh, talks a lot about method acting and the acting of that period and kind of the, the reversal of career expectations that when they started having what began as an affair and became a multi-decade marriage, uh, that at the moment, Joanne Woodward was the leading and dramatic actress of her generation. She was on the brink of an Oscar win. She was clearly the star of stars, whereas Paul Newman was kind of a, a second tier Marlon Brando or or James Dean. And, and James Dean's death even helped get Paul Newman the role in Somebody Up There Likes Me, which helped launch his career. So it covers a lot of that in great depth. There there are some very amusing structural conceits that Ethan Hawke had to go into because of the COVID of it all. So it's he brought together a lot of his friends on Zoom to read transcripts of interviews done with the people featured. So you have George Clooney voicing Paul Newman. You have Laura Linney voicing Joanne Woodward. I thought that was all very amusingly done. To me, the biggest letdown is that 
most people are going to come away from this documentary desperately wanting to do a Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward marathon of various movies. And HBO appears not to have been prepared for this. Obviously, there are all of the contingencies of of who has rights to what and what streaming service has rights to something like Three Faces of Eve or something. But if you go on to HBO right now, there are only like four or five Paul Newman films available on HBO to watch, which is just not great because you're going to want to watch HUD. You're going to want to watch Three Faces of Eve. You're going to want to watch The Hustler. And they just aren't easily streaming. So either you can pay a few bucks and watch them on demand, and they're great movies. I would never tell anyone not to pay as much money as they wanted to to watch HUD. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. But you really want to get to the end of this documentary and have, if you like this, you want to watch these 16 collaborations now between Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, and they're just not prepared for that. And so that is a minor disappointment. Uh, but I, I enjoyed the documentary. It is a a good documentary. Um, let's see. What else did you mention is premiering this week? There is Rap Shit, which is Issa Rae's first show since Insecure. And it has a lot of Insecure DNA to it. Issa Rae wrote the first episode and then executive produced the rest, obviously. And the the premise is kind of people in Miami trying to make it. Several of them are aspiring rappers. Others are aspiring other things in the artistic scene. So there's obviously a very, very different setting that Miami provides that Los Angeles does not and that the rap world provides that all of the various different directions that things went on Insecure didn't go. There's also a heavy concentration on social media. So a lot of it is a lot of the information is conveyed via people's Instagram feeds, people's TikToks, people FaceTiming with each other. And I think that's an interesting stylistic device. I don't know that it fully succeeds yet. I, I think that Insecure really was a show that came on the scene and really from its pilot was very confident in what it was. And maybe, you know, it got better as it went along in certain cases because, you know, they found different depths to the characters and all of that. But it was a, it was a confident series when it started. And this feels like it's trying a lot of very, very different things. I don't know if they all feel like they're working, but they feel like they're, they're interesting. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I liked it. I will definitely watch more. I'm curious how it will settle into kind of a weekly rhythm because the episodes don't all feel like they're from the same show. Uh, and then looking forward to next week again, can't, can't talk about the resort, uh, or keep breathing. Haven't watched Harley Quinn yet, but very much looking forward to it. Uh, can't talk about paper girls because it's embargoed also, but light and magic on Disney plus it's another Disney plus uh, commercial for various things that are on Disney plus. It is about the history of ILM of industrial lights and magic. It makes me laugh because it's directed by Lawrence Kasdan and, that's kind of cool. Lawrence Kasdan seems overqualified to direct a uh, a commercial for various Disney-based products that's kind of a documentary, but mostly a commercial. And yes, I understand his involvement in the world of Lucasfilm. It's not out of nowhere. He's very much immersed in this world. Still, he's overqualified to direct a six-hour commercial. Lots of great footage, lots of amusing people from John Dykstra on talking about just the things that they did on Star Wars and how that 
imposed new rules and new technology that basically reshaped the industry. So either you're going to be annoyed because it really does feel like a butt-kissing commercial, or you'll be excited because it's a lot of cool stuff about movies you like. And so, yes, is it a commercial? Uh, very much so. But the footage, the footage is great. The stories are terrific. So all very interesting. So, like I said, you've got the uh you've got the last movie stars on HBO Max. That would be the Ethan Hawke, uh, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward documentary. It's good. Rap shit on HBO Max also, which is Issa Rae created and it's funny and got a good setting, some interesting characters, good sense of voice, and then uh, Light of Magic, which is a commercial, but a commercial for things that you love. So sometimes, you know, we all just go on YouTube and watch retro trailers. So think of it as like that, only a tiny bit more substantive. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those do help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear what's working, what isn't working, etc. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 